I think it's very important to stress the value of urban design. If a great street, a great smart street can be a great route for transportation, a corridor, transportation corridor, but it can also be a place for social interaction, for economic opportunity and for housing and for offices, for everything. So streets are actually part of the cornerstone that build livable and sustainable cities. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a new Skanska podcast. We're here to recognize, encourage, and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon built environment. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry and civic leaders, policymakers, and other champions of change to explore innovative solutions to real challenges. Transportation and mobility solutions, both personal and logistical, are essential for modern societies. With growing population, increasing urbanization, and pressure on housing, more people have to travel long distances for work and leisure. This puts increasing pressure on road networks, which is also no fun for those stuck in traffic, as well as public transit systems, and a more globalized business sector requires more efficient transport networks. Transport was responsible for up to 37% of emissions from end-use sectors in 2021, and this number currently continues to grow. So how can communities, governments, and the private sector develop a smarter strategy for mobility, with harmony among different transit platforms like trains, subways, buses, and trucks, personal mobility such as cycling and walking, and private transport that reduces the energy consumption and carbon emissions? Today, our host Heather Clancy sits down with three industry experts to discuss how mobility solutions and transport networks can and should evolve to reduce emissions from transportation while helping to connect people and improve their quality of life. She begins with Emma Head, Technical Services Delivery Director for HS2, or High Speed 2, the UK's flagship transport project involving the construction of a brand new high speed railway between the southeast and northeast of England. Emma is responsible for the technical functions that enable development and construction of the railway and associated infrastructure. The project employs a vast number of professionals, including engineers and designers, environmental and town planners, a wide range of construction workers, and tunnel bridge and railway specialists. Health, safety, security, and quality are of utmost importance, and they are focused mainly on building a railway that is fit for the future. So... Give me a sense of what HS2 covers. How big is this project? It's described as the biggest project of its kind, biggest engineering project, just a massive, massive undertaking. What does that mean? What is the scale of this project? Oh, I mean, it's phenomenal. Just in constructing between London and Birmingham, we're looking at building two new depots, 32 miles of tunnels. That's where we've buried the railway underground. There's nine miles of viaduct where the railway is up on stilts. And we'll build 140 bridges just in that section alone. And you can imagine that could be quite carbon hungry. So we're looking now at our designs to make sure that we really do minimise the amount of concrete and steel required. That's the best opportunity if you're trying to limit carbon. But we're also looking to minimise noise and vibration in the design of these assets too. So they sit neatly into the landscape and are good neighbours for the future. And is this a government project? Tell me a little bit more about the background of this particular project, where it came from and who manages it. Yes, we are completely government funded. It's a CapEx investment from government. And we're set up as an arm's length body of government 
purely with the purpose of developing and delivering the high-speed rail infrastructure for high-speed two. So that's everything from route definition, where it runs, getting the Acts of Parliament through. It's also then developing the detailed requirement and design, managing the supply chain to build it, and ultimately integrating it, testing and commissioning it into a fully operational railway. Now, is this something that's going to supplement or augment the existing rail infrastructure, or is it going to replace it? Oh, it's absolutely an augmentation, and it's absolutely part of having a bigger plan for transport. HS2 will begin running between 2029 and 2033, when the first phase is complete, and aims to be the most sustainable railway in the world. 170 miles of new high-speed line is already under construction, and in total, over 250 miles of new high-speed line is planned, including a new station in Manchester, Birmingham, and London, with trains continuing on the existing network to many other towns and cities, including in Scotland. So the idea being that we connect cities across the UK much quicker, enabling growth, particularly in the north, which has been a big commitment of the UK government. It's also about releasing capacity on the conventional network so we can get more short duration journeys, commuter journeys onto the conventional network and free up space for freight. So taking freight off the road. And the third big thing about high speed too is part of the green agenda. So it is about decarbonizing transport, offering a green alternative to air transport, for example, to enable people to make long distance journeys across the UK. What are the main challenges that you face in putting together an effort of this scale and magnitude? If you look, first of all, at the tensions on a government level, they're desperately trying to boost growth. And so they're looking about how we make good investments in the transport infrastructure in the UK to enable local geographic pockets to grow. But we're also on the trajectory to try and decarbon net zero by 2050. And we're absolutely committed to becoming a green nation as well. And that's a real tension, actually, because to build a huge piece of infrastructure like HS2, you do expend carbon in the construction, knowing that you will obviously save carbon once it's live and operational, because ultimately it will be carbon net zero from day one of operation. We've guaranteed using carbon net zero fuel sources. So that's the first tension. You are on a long-term environmental project that has immediate environmental impact. And sometimes it can be quite hard to explain that and win that argument. A second challenge that we face is that obviously we have to buy and therefore displace people from their land to enable us to have the route to construct the infrastructure. In a number of places, that's quite rural, which could be seen as less disruptive, but obviously cuts through some very beautiful parts of the UK landscape. And we also hit some urban areas as well. And for those people who don't see benefit from the route because they're not near one of the hub cities, that can obviously be a challenge to explain. We've worked really, really hard to make sure that we're as good a neighbour as we can be. We've made an awful lot of commitments through the parliamentary process to restrict lorry movements on roads, construct a highway within the line of the railway so that we can move things not on the public highway. And we do a lot of things around limiting hours and just elimination and all those sorts of things to make sure we absolutely limit our impact during construction. How is the economic downturn that we're all facing globally affecting this project and the outlook for things like this? Is it making it more important that we get these in place? Is it 
challenging to timeframe? Of course, it's challenging, but it's also an opportunity that the UK government have already come out and committed to continuing to build HS2 to Manchester. It really is critical to invest now in that future. But it's also really important for economic stability today. HS2 has 350 live sites currently, and we're sustaining 29,000 jobs. So it's about keeping and bolstering the construction sector today, as well as investing for that future investment of infrastructure. But of course, there are challenges around the current economic environment. If you look, for example, at fuel, and the way that fuel prices have increased significantly, we are a large fuel consumer in our construction sites. But it's also provided us with a real opportunity because now other fuel sources become comparable to diesel cost. So we're starting to drive and get faster at implementing environmentally sustainable fuel sources such as oil-based, HVOs, etc. Often referred to as renewable diesel, hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HVO, is a low-carbon fuel obtained by treating and processing vegetable oils, like sunflower, soybean, or palm, with hydrogen at high temperatures and pressure. The result? A sustainable fuel made with materials that would normally go to waste. This is just one type of fuel that companies like HS2 are experimenting with in order to move away from fuels like diesel. Now, from a cost-business case perspective, It also causes us to just look at simple innovations. I'll give you a really basic one. The centre of most concrete structures is not part of the structural integrity, but we fill it with concrete because concrete has been so cheap. Why would you create something to block the centre off? We're now looking at simple balloons, which save carbon, save concrete, save money. We haven't had to fundamentally change anything, but the incentives are there by the economic and financial pressures we find ourselves under, as well as that overarching green agenda. You also mentioned the challenges in building this through natural environments and social implications. So how are you and your partners working to reduce those impacts? Can you give me some other examples of how you're working with the communities that are going to be affected with this? Or what is it that you're doing in those communities to help number one, alleviate the impact, but also to get the buy-in and the sort of blessing, if you will, at least a peaceful coexistence. There's a couple of really good examples of the sorts of things we've been able to do. One is movement of materials by rail. So using where we can the existing rail infrastructure to bring materials in and out site, that's helped us to remove 80,000 lorry loads just off the road around one or two sites in London alone. So, you know, you can start to reduce your physical impact, but at the same time, you're therefore also removing diesel emissions, et cetera. So you're making it a nicer place to be as well. We've stood up a couple of community funds. So there's a community and a small business fund, both aimed at local environmental projects where we are able to give grants and support to those who have been impacted by the route to invest back in local green space, local communities so that we give back. Another really good example is we're actually planting an awful lot of new green infrastructure along the side of the railway that acts as a long term as a barrier to the visual impact, but also to noise and other kind of vibratory issues. But that's an opportunity because we're creating loads of new green space for communities. So we're starting to look at how we can make them publicly accessible, how we can include cycle routes, how we can make the area nicer than when we inherited it in many cases. So it's about making sure that this development is sympathetic 
so that when it is delivered, it offers those local benefits too. When it's in action, how does this project address the regional emissions for a particular city? I guess maybe the question is, how are people getting to and from these places now? Are they flying? Are they taking the local rail, the existing rail? Are they driving? And then how does this project help address those emissions associated with that travel now? So for the UK, transport is the biggest carbon emitter. So attacking green transport has to be part of the government's agenda if they want to achieve their net zero targets. When we launched High Speed One in the UK about 20 years ago, which is the route from the south coast up to London, but also connects into the Channel Tunnel to take people across to Paris and Brussels, we saw a 50 to 60% reduction in flight usage with that transfer to rail. So we'll, of course, be looking for something similar from High Speed 2. And if you look, because we connect into the conventional network, somebody will be able to get on a train in London, get the high speed route as far as Manchester, then seamlessly not having to change trains into the conventional network and take them all the way to Edinburgh or Glasgow, which will give people a three to three and a half hour journey time door to door, which is then starting to compare to flights by the time you've got getting to the airport, security checks, et cetera, et cetera. So we will see, I think, quite a modal shift away from both road and away from flights to a fast, sustainable rail network. What kinds of innovations on the materials side and also on the transportation technology side are making this project possible? In terms of climate resilience, I should reflect, first of all, on the conventional network. It's 100 plus years old. It wasn't designed for the climate we find ourselves in today, let alone what is forecast to happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And we do see under extreme conditions of heat, cold and wet, it doesn't stand up to the test of weather. We had the period this summer where we had very hot temperatures and rails buckled and overhead lines failed. And that took a few days to rectify. So the country can come to a bit of a grinding halt. Obviously, we're entering into the design of a new railway and we know that climate change condition. So we're designing for that now and we're designing for those extremes to be more frequent. One really good example is sustainable drainage systems. So we are looking at how you can make sure you can filter away extreme rainfall so that it doesn't flood the tracks and allows trains to continue to run, but also that you don't push it all into the existing local networks and therefore flood housing or flood other local areas. So we're having to look quite innovatively and quite wide patches to manage that sort of risk to make sure it sustainably operates in the future. What do you hope the environmental legacy of High Speed 2 will be? It has to help UK on its journey to carbon net zero by 2050, it has to provide a absolute step change in the transport sector emissions. But not just that, 39% of global emissions are from construction. So I see as also leaving a legacy of cleaning up construction as well. We've made a commitment to go diesel free on all construction sites by 2029. We've already got 10 diesel-free sites across the UK. We have all of the electric cranes available in the UK on HS2 sites. That really is cleaning up construction. And then if we're able to achieve our target of being carbon net zero in construction by 2035, we'll have left a huge legacy for UK construction and infrastructure sector in showing new ways of building infrastructure that doesn't have so many embodied carbon 
into the fabric of that infrastructure. HS2 hopes to not only clean up the transportation sector, but the construction and infrastructure sectors as well. Their commitment to connecting the UK in a sustainable and resilient way is inspiring and can serve as an example for countries around the world. Our next guest, Alexander Stala, is an urban design researcher, the CEO of Spacecape, an architecture and planning organization, and the founder of Place to Plan, an IT service and consulting firm. Alexander also recently penned a book titled Closer Together, This is the Future of Cities. Inside, he identifies trends that could change the course of future cities with a focus on the transportation sector. He and Heather discuss the main challenges facing cities in terms of the urban environment and transportation, solutions that have emerged that address these challenges, and how the real estate sector can and should enact these solutions. What do you see as the main challenges facing large cities in terms of the urban environment and transport? I would say three major things. Digitalization post-COVID and the energy climate crisis, and then I would say economic and affordability crisis. And talking about digitalization, e-commerce is really changing retail as we know it. People are starting working from home. So this has decreased the demand for personal transportation, but increased the demand for goods transportation. So this is a major thing which affects also how we think of the whole system of transportation in cities. Coming to the energy and climate crisis, I think we will see a sharp rise in costs of transportation. So basically we will not be able to afford to drive cars as we used to. If energy is very expensive, then people will have to bike, will have to walk, will have to take public transport, and will have to coordinate good services in a much more efficient way. So also could be improved, of course, by the digitalization of those systems. And then when it comes to the economic and affordability crisis, which is somehow connected to the energy crisis, I really think that this will put the pressure on how we move in the future. And as said, I think we probably cannot afford these very high energy transportation systems that we basically built in the last 100 years, the car-based city, if you can say that. So what solutions do you see coming out to address these challenges? Are there anything in particular that we can point to as the way forward, as a path forward, if you will? I think as set out in my book, Closer Together, where we will show that many trends are really ongoing, trying to solve these challenges. Cities around the world are urbanizing and they are densifying. So if you look at the plans for many of the greater cities, they concentrate their new housing development and office development around public transport, because that's the most energy efficient way. Paris is talking about the 15-minute city. You can talk about the 45-minute city. That's, I think, one major solution. Then the street system. Of course, 20% of our cities consist of street space, and we have to use it smarter. And if we're facing a climate crisis, we have to adapt our streets for a new severe weather and storm water, for example. We have to make space for bike lanes to people to get easier to where they want to go by bike. And also, we have to have a new way of looking at the curbside. We cannot just use the curbside for parking. We have to use it much more efficiently. And we have started to talk about the one-minute city, the city just outside your doorstep. How would it be if there is just much more efficiently managed as a space for just being 
for playing, for meeting people, for e-commerce delivery, for everything, all these new things. One, I think, last thing coming to solving the transportation puzzle, I think it really is pricing. There are some cities that have congestion pricing, Stockholm, Singapore, London. We know that it works. We know that it is a very important way to more efficiently use the limited road space that we have. And parking. Of course, we have to price parking, both private parking, but also on-street parking. We have to price it, market price it, because then we will use it more efficiently. So I think pricing also is a key issue to solve the whole transportation puzzle. I'm wondering about, in particular, you were talking about home delivery and logistics and so forth. What systems could really help alleviate that? Are there particular, I hear about things like bikes, having transportation centers, distribution centers in the middle of a city, and then having things being biked out to the last mile sort of thing. Are there different innovations that you could talk about? Autonomous vehicles, e-scooters, anything in particular that you see as being particularly relevant in cities at this moment, or all of them maybe, depending on the layout of the city? I think you're right at it. I just spoke to some retail companies and also e-commerce companies. And my problem is really a thing which could be sold now in denser environments by centralizing goods in stations, but also bike delivery, as you mentioned. This meaning if it's done by bike, it's climate efficient, but it's also quiet. So it could be done at nighttime. These things could also, I think, make the whole system more efficient and more adapted to the denser urban environments. And I also think that the whole like digitalization, that trend is making a possibility to optimize flows, to optimize goods. There are a lot of empty spaces being driven around in the city. We can be much more efficient to use the goods and transportation vehicles that are going around the city. And so this whole system can be much more optimized by smart systems connecting the e-commerce companies and people's deliveries and homes and addresses and so on. So this is a typical where digital system can really solve this challenge. Well, so to stick with roads for a moment here, during COVID, there were many reimaginings of roads in New York City. There's far more bike lanes now. In terms of other cities, I know that people have shut off entire roads to make them only available to pedestrian track. What ways can we speed up street transformations, if you will, to make cities more livable? How can this help with affordability? How can this help with the 15-minute city thing? What's possible? First of all, I don't know if this is the right definition, but in my research, we talk of roads as a space where you only do transportation, we only move, but streets are places where you can move and stop. So that's, a, I think, a, a very important distinction to make. And to be very radical here, I would say that cities do not need roads. <laughs> cities need streets. We need these spaces where you can both move and stop and have this social an economic interchange between people. And so coming to the transformation of streets to better streets, to smarter streets, yes, we have to do it. We have to find out ways to do it cheaper and faster. And as you said, during COVID, there were some tests, very temporary things. Some may be made permanent, some going back to normal. We are doing right now an ongoing research project looking at how you can, in a fast way, actually make permanent change. 
I think it's very important to stress the value of urban design. If a great street, a great smart street can be a great route for transportation, a corridor, transportation corridor, but it can also be a place for social interaction, for economic opportunity and for housing and for offices, for everything. So streets are actually part of the cornerstone that build livable and sustainable cities. So how can the real estate sector, the developers, the Skanskas of the world really respond and help address this? Are there examples of things that are in place or cooperative efforts, right? Because the communities in these cities are the ones that should help define what they look like and and help address these challenges we've been talking about. But how can the real estate sector really respond and be part of the solution? I think they are a huge part of the solution. And looking at Skanska, Skanska works both for the real estate arena and also for the public sector building streets and roads. I think a key word here is quality of life. Yes, we have climate issues, energy issues, and everything we talked about, economic issues, but nothing will change if it does not create quality of life. I think quality of life is sometimes mentioned as livability or happiness or what have you, but this is a thing that will change people's demand for housing or demand for transportation. This is a thing that will create a demand for going shopping or not, or uh, moving to a place or another place. And we see the places that are economically vibrant and are growing are the places that actually supply a quality of life for their residents. And looking at the real estate sector, they are very important part to create housing developments that are livable and green and not car dependent. So, yes, I think the real estate sector here has a very important part of creating the like the future livable neighborhoods that we need in a future where maybe energy is not so abundant anymore and where we will not be able to drive the car as we do today and where bikes and walking and public transport is the major mode of transportation. In this case, a company like Skanska or some real estate development or building companies, they can start to collaborate with mobility companies that have carpools or parking companies that have smart solutions for collective community parking. And so these are some examples of taking these challenges and making them an opportunity for building a better city and a better place for people. Alexander makes some excellent points on how we can rethink our roads and streets in ways that improve the quality of life for those who use them, while rethinking sustainability. He touches on what he thinks real estate developers can do to help, especially in the face of a future where energy may not be as readily available. This presents the perfect segue to our next guest, Stale Roth, who is an executive vice president for Skenska Group and former CEO for Skenska Norway. He notes that the company is one of the most important players in construction and project development in Norway. Stala and Heather discuss the biggest challenges developers encounter in reducing carbon emissions, various opportunities to lower carbon footprints, and how Skanska is cleaning up its manufacturing and materials in Norway. What do you see as the biggest challenge for the industry to succeed with climate reductions, considering the global agreements that are in place, but also the objectives that each company has for their own? What do you see as the challenges and how do you address them? 
First of all, Skanska's climate ambition, we're going to reduce our carbon emission by 70% by 2030 and be carbon neutral by 2045. And that's really ambitious. My biggest concern is really the speed of change that is needed to actually deliver on our own targets. And related to that, also the competence development and the competence needed to find the good and the new solutions. And then you can talk in two perspectives. You can talk the competence we need ourselves to be able to provide good solution, but also the competence that is needed by our partners, by our suppliers, by our clients and customers, so that we all work in the same direction. My last point here is related to how much we spend on finding new solutions. Because I'm convinced that from here we are today in 2022 and up to 2030, we have a pretty good view on what is needed, what we have to do to deliver on our targets. But to be quite clear, we don't have the answer how we will make sure that Skanska has carbon neutrality in 2045. So we actually need to invest in finding new solutions uh, that can help us delivering on our own targets. I think I'll go back to where I started. What really concerns me is the speed of change. We have a tendency to overestimate how fast the change is in the short run, but underestimate the real change in the long run. And time is running. We're getting closer to 2030 and suddenly it's 2045. And we don't have the solution to reach 2045. So we really have to speed up. So you're talking about solutions, which is a great segue into the opportunities and the different changes and methods that we're going to need to lower carbon footprints and also to support future mobility needs, you know, the new future of transportation, sustainable transportation. So what changes and methods are you seeing when it comes to planning, design, construction? Can we be a little bit more specific about some of the things that you're doing to potentially cut direct emissions? Let's start there. First of all, you can divide this in two in principle. As you say, the, the direct emissions, what is needed in a way for us to construct what we do. And then you have the indirect emissions that comes from the material we use and in a way the life use of the buildings or the roads, etc. If we start with our direct emissions, on the civil side, a lot comes down to how we today use a lot of fossil fuel to fuel our machines. When we build a road or railway or a tunnel, everything is about bringing rock or mass material from one place to another place, how we use it and utilize it. And it is important that we don't spend a lot of energy on moving all sorts of things long distances. So first of all, what can we do to optimize how we use the masses and material in a project to make sure that we don't transport it longer than we have to do it? The other thing is how we make sure that we develop our machines from today using a lot of fossil fuel to fossil-free solutions, electric machines, etc., how we use biofuel, etc. The last thing is related to optimizing the design. And this is valid, of course, for both civil and building projects. But how can we make sure that we use as little as possible of the CO2 consumers like concrete and steel, etc., which are the big ones? How can we make sure that we optimize our design so we use as little as possible? 
And how can we make sure that the material we use has the lowest carbon footprint as possible? There's a lot of good work done on concrete now to make sure that the cement is produced with a very low carbon footprint. The same thing is happening now within the steel and aluminium industry and also related to how we produce plastic. So a lot of things is ongoing. It's related to, in a way, not spending too much energy on moving things and then how to optimize design to make sure that we use as little material as possible. So what are the opportunities? You mentioned some other materials, but what are the opportunities for low carbon or low climate neutral or a different approach to asphalt? We have now developed in Skanska very good solution for new binding material in asphalt that reduce the carbon emission dramatically. So I actually see very positive on how we can deliver asphalt also in the future. You mentioned, obviously, it consumes a lot of often diesel fuel. So how are we approaching the equipment itself in terms of different fuel sources or even electrification? We're spending a lot of money now in renewing our machinery to make sure that we have, first of all, energy efficient machines, that we have machines that either go on electric solutions or biofuel. We are investing heavily and we're also working on other fuel like hydrogen as a possible future solution for the heavy machinery within civil. When you look at our tunneling project, and we have a lot of tunneling projects in Norway, they are for all practicalities run by electric machine. So the drilling jumbos in the tunnel, they have been running on electric energy for decades. And now we are working on transport solutions as well, to make sure that we don't have to use fossil fuel to transport the rock from the tunnel and to the depot or deposit. So a lot of good things is done now to make sure that our machinery is fossil-free. What do you see as the key factors in scaling and implementing these solutions successfully on a more widespread basis? You've mentioned specific projects. How can we make these more mainstream? What are going to be some of the key success factors there? I think we need to spend a lot more energy on R&D activity, making sure that we actually develop a good sustainable solution. And then to make sure that we spread that competence, because it's not enough to make sure that you find one good solution in this project. We have to go to scale. And I think making sure that the competence around what kind of solution do we have in Skanska and how can we actually apply these solutions in several business units that do the same thing making sure that we actually get the scale benefit out of it. And here, really, Skanska have a, a great opportunity. If we're just good at knowledge transfer from one business unit to another business unit. So how do you get that knowledge back into the other divisions? So you, again, to go to scale, how do you help mainstream that state-of-the-art knowledge across your organization? We have to acknowledge that R&D activity needs the financial support. In a way, the solution doesn't come by itself. So we have to have a clear view and we have to support innovation happening in the organization, in the project, to make sure that it's really boosting how we develop. In a business where low margin has been the standard for decades, it's not been really a culture for investing in new solutions. And we need to change that because the new solutions are needed for us to deliver on our own climate targets. How does Skanska and Skanska Norway in particular 
help spread that knowledge across the industry. What role do you play in helping share that knowledge and helping it become more of an industry practice? We work a lot now with talking to the politicians. Legislation is hindering us today. And how do we make sure that the politicians understand that and do their best? We share the same view of the future, right? We really want a sustainable future. And then we have to work with the politicians to make sure that they understand that they have the competence so that they can make the legislation that actually are supporting us and pushing us. The other thing is how we work with our partners, our suppliers, to make sure that we share the same goal, that we develop our future solution. And many of the future we deliver on now and in the future, we need partners actually to do it. We can't do it alone. Going back to our own business strategy, partnering is important to deliver in the future. And then we're sharing knowledge across business units. And we have projects where we work together. Norway, Sweden, UK, we work together in projects. We teach each other, we support each other, we challenge each other, and we share practice and knowledge across the borders. As is the case for many sustainable innovations, legislation, collaboration, and knowledge sharing are all needed in order to cut the emissions from the transportation sector. Stola affirms that when we all share the same goal, anything is possible. Companies like Skenska have big goals to reduce carbon emissions and to become carbon neutral, as well as to create healthy places that live on beyond our lifetime. Organizations like High Speed 2 and researchers like Alexander Stola are also working toward the same objectives. HS2 is focused on decarbonizing the UK, but it is also about enabling the healthy growth of the country by connecting people and making places outside London more attractive to live. All of our guests certainly can agree on one thing, through smarter mobility solutions, we can improve the quality of life tenfold. Both the transportation sector and the built environment are two of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. If we can reduce those emissions by just a fraction, the effect could be life-changing. Thank you for listening to this episode, and a special thanks to our guests, Emma Head, Stola Roth, and Alexander Stola for joining us. To learn more about why it's essential to reduce carbon emissions and energy consumption in the transportation sector, and for links to anything mentioned in the show, head to the show notes. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review, and join us every episode as we continue to explore shaping sustainable places. This podcast is brought to you by Skenska. We are a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Go to skenska.com to learn more. That's S-K-A-N-S-K-A dot com.